So you got your Bible. Uh, if you need one, there's some in the pews there. But go ahead and open up to Psalm 49. Uh, Psalms is one of the easiest books in the Bible. You can just open up right to the middle in any Bible, and it should put you somewhere in the Psalms. And uh, find your way over to Psalm 49. Uh, and as you're getting there, I, I do. Want, you might notice right off the bat that in the title of this psalm, we, we see that it's the sons of Korah. And that's that uh, odd thing you might not be used to seeing. Uh, Korah was actually a, a man who led this rebellion against Moses, right? So you probably have an immediate uh, opinion of Korah right there from the beginning. But um, the rebellion ultimately failed. Many people died in this rebellion, including Korah himself. And yet many of his descendants lived on after him and, and were part of the, uh, the covenant community of, of God's people. And so uh, many years later, once the temple was built and completed, every family in, in Israel was given this role, every family name, every family line, a role in the temple of what they were going to do. Um, uh, were assigned to it. And the sons of Korah were given the job as the doorkeepers of the temple. Uh, open the door, close the door, guard the door, everything that had to do with the door, uh, the doors. And, and it, so you kind of are surprised then to find out that they also were used by the Lord to write 11 of the Psalms of the 150 Psalms in the Psalter. Uh, including our psalm today. So that's, that's who the sons of Korah are. Uh, now as we read this, we're going to read it in, in actually five sections. One section is just one verse, so don't panic too much. Um, and, and after we've read each section, we'll unpack it a bit, and then we'll read the next section when we get to that. And I want to do it that way just to keep it fresh in our minds uh, and, and let it kind of unfold in the way that it does properly for us. So uh, we're going to start with just the first four verses this morning. Uh, Psalm 49, uh, beginning in verse 1. Follow along as I read. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. The grass withers, the flower fades. Well, let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we come to your word to hear from you. We come to your word to learn from you. Would you enlighten our hearts this Lord's day so that we may understand and believe your word? We might grow from what we, what we hear here. May we leave today with a, a better sense of the world that we live in and, and the greatness of the God who created this world and who loves us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this introduction here, these first four verses of this psalm, acts a bit like uh, a modern-day uh, hype man in hip-hop music. Uh, it's kind of the setup, or kind of like Susie acted today, right? So, the, the hype man to get things rolling. He's, he's preparing the audience, uh, the, those who are singing, and those who are listening, for, for what's going to follow. He's, he's gathering attention to the significance uh, of these, these statements that are about to follow. And so it's just getting us prepared, right? So we also see here, though, that in contrast to many of the Psalms, which are written to Israel or to, to Zion, to a specific group of people within the covenant community, this Psalm is for everyone. The wisdom here is for the entire earth, right? He says there, hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world. It's for everyone. And then in verse 2, we, we see this literary device called merism. 
uh, which is just, you see it all the time, it's two extremes on, on opposite ends, and the idea is not just the extremes, but everything in between these two. And so when he's saying to the high and the low, to the rich and the poor, he's, he's really doubling down that everybody, everybody needs to know what this psalmist, what the psalmist is about to say here, what he's going to speak. Verse 3 again, right, uh, is of the hype, hype variety. Here comes wisdom. Here, here's, you know, he's, he's, here comes wisdom. Here comes this understanding. It's preparing them. And verse 4 makes it clear this isn't just about uh, his wisdom. This is about God's wisdom. That's what he's saying there when he says, I will incline my ear to the proverb, right? I'm receiving this from somewhere. He, he, it's about his listening to wisdom, that the wisdom he's going to share has a source, and the source is the Lord. And then in that last verse of this section, uh, verse 4, I love it. it. It almost begs to be spoken of some sort of spoken word, uh, hip-hop lyric, I think. Um, and in fact, I asked Stucky, who if you don't know, one of his weird little things he does. Sorry, I presented that wrong, huh? You resent that? Yes, so Stucky was going to do a little spoken word for it at some point. If he ever does, I'll, I'll send it to you. Anyway, listen as he says, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. You, you can almost hear it there. And, and you're understanding all this preparation, right? Because we haven't even heard what the riddle is yet. It, it's in the next section, and he set it up so incredibly well. Because don't, don't you want to know what the riddle is that he's going to unravel? Don't you want to hear the wisdom that's to come? And all of this is set to the music of the lyre. I think that's the moment when we realize this was absolutely not set to any sort of hip-hop beat. Um, the lyre is just this hand handheld uh, harp-like instrument. Uh, you can look it up and listen to it. They're pretty interesting instruments, but it would not have gone in hip-hop music at all. Um, so the, anyway, so, so that's where we are. We, we've ended there at this part so far. And, and we're going to read this next section because now he's going to start giving the wisdom that he's prepared us for. And so follow along in verses 5 through 9 as we, we read this musical masterpiece of his. He says, Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast in their abundance of riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of, the, of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Now we see the riddle, right? He, he's asking himself, why do I fear, why should I fear those who are powerful and they're powerful because of their wealth? Why, why should I fear those people that use their power to cheat me, to, to cheat others? And the idea here is, is, is not, and I'll be careful here, the idea here is not all rich people are terrible people and all poor people are good people. One, you know that's not the case, and that's not what he's teaching here. The, the point here is that God has permitted some people who do reject God to get rich and powerful in this world. And, and those same people here uh, who, who are trusting and boasting in their wealth, not God, but their wealth, they're, they're characterizing this psalm as the enemies of God's people. That they have caused people to fear because of their power and their wealth. I mean, surely you, you, you pondered some form of this, this question in our modern context, right? Why, why has God permitted wealth to men like uh, Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, founders of Microsoft and Facebook, when, when these same men use this wealth to promote ethics that are quite contrary to God's word? Why, why, why does this happen? 
It seems contrary to what we expect, right? Or, or we put ourselves, if I were God, I would never let that happen. Well, we're not God, right? He does let that happen. He causes that to happen. It's, it, isn't this, though, just a cultural question for our anxious hearts today? What, why should I fear these wealthy and powerful people who mean harm to me and the values I hold? And he, and he gives an answer to that riddle that probably would not be the first idea we'd, we'd come up with, right? He, he goes right to the greatest weakness of riches, the, the Achilles heel of money, right? The, the missing scale on the, the dragon of wealth. He goes right to it. He, he points out that whatever advantage money gives in life, and, and it does give advantages in life, what, whatever advantage that money gives, still no amount of money can ransom the life of another. You hear in this? Gold, silver, livestock, dollars, pesos, euros, yen, stock, bitcoin. These are not currency in the kingdom of God. They have no value. You, you, you cannot buy eternal life with wealth. And you see why, why, why the wealth of his enemy does not cause him fear then? You see the limitations of it. I mean, we think about it. Sure, money, money can get a friend out of debt, right? Money, money can get a loved one medical treatment that will prolong their life longer. Uh, money can get someone out of legal trouble that they've found themselves in. But no amount of money, none at all, can be paid to God to free a man or a woman or a child from inevitable death. It can't be done. And then in our, our next section of, of this unraveling lyrical riddle builds on that idea. He's actually going to go into it even further. I want you to uh, listen here. We're going to read from beginning in verse 15. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boast. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. It gets dark in a hurry, doesn't it? Everybody's going to die. That's the general statement there. And really, it's not always that, that the wealthy think that they're going to escape death forever. No one really thinks that. But, but rather, they, they think of themselves as, as functionally invincible in, in some regard. That, that this death is, is always just so far away, so many years down the line, as to let's just not worry about it. That's for then, not now. Not even think about it. In fact, that's how most people pacify that, that question, right? That, that fear of, of their own mortality. To simply distract themselves with entertainment or career or personal pursuits of various sorts, right? Let's just, let's just go after that. Let's, don't even worry about that. And he paints this picture in verse 11 here that, you know, of, of the wealthy having lands named after themselves. It's almost a, a mockery the way he puts this. But, you know, because he's reminding them, you're not going to dwell in those lands. They might be called by your name, but you're not going to live there because you're going to live in the grave. You're going to be dead. It's dark, but it's necessarily so here. 
Verse 12 then is reminiscent of the Lord's revelation through Solomon when he's writing in Ecclesiastes chapter 319. There he says, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies another. And the whole point is that when people live as though though wealth and and power and, and success in that regard, when they live for that instead of the Lord, then a man lives more like an animal than a person who's been made in the image of God. It doesn't negate that he is made in the image of God, but... It reduces their life to something more comparable to just the beast of the field. Verse 13 brings to light what we've seen throughout history. And uh, that those who trust in their wealth are oddly culturally esteemed and, and celebrated after their death. And yet, they're all dead. I mean, just think about this for a moment. Think of any significantly wealthy, powerful person in history. Our own country's uh, history. You know, John D. Rockefeller. If he were alive today, he'd be worth $254 billion by today's standards. It's a lot of money. All, all that money, and still at the age of 98, his arteries closed up on him and he died. You think about Henry Ford, right? The push forward the automobile in our country in crazy ways. Died of a stroke. Alexander the Great, we talked about him last year, right? Or last week. He's not afraid of sleeping because someone's protecting him. And yet, Alexander the Great used all of his wealth, all of his power to conquer the Persian Empire. You know, well, well done, Alexander. But he got sick and he died at the age of 32. 32. It doesn't matter how much wealth and prestige and power every person in history that you can think of and existed has died. Socrates, Plato, Confucius, Muhammad, dead. Ted Williams, Walt Disney, Winston Churchill, Michelangelo, Nelson Mandela, Genghis Khan, Thomas Jefferson, Einstein, Napoleon, Karl Marx, Hitler, Gandhi, Caesar, Darwin, Einstein. All these names of of prestige and power in our culture. All dead. And I know this is creepy stuff to say, but the reality here is that we, we can't live like death will never come because it will. It will. It always saddens me when I think of the story of, of Steve Jobs. Um, guy was brilliant. He, he was intriguing. He was this technological king-like individual. And, and yet he rejected God. His, his boast was in his wealth, his technology, his own intelligence. But no technology, no amount of money could ransom his life. At the age of 56, despite all of his efforts, all of his wealth, he, he died of pancreatic cancer. And the world goes on. And we're going to see more stories just like Steve Jobs. Mark Cuban, Cuban, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Howard Schultz, Oprah Winfrey, Warren Buffett, Zuckerberg. They all will one day die, no matter how much money they manage to, to collect together, right? And as our psalm says here, that they, they leave their wealth to others. It's of no benefit to them. When I was a kid, I know board games are still played today, but they become this crazy complex. You need like a 42-sided die to play. When I was a kid, we still played games like uh, Monopoly. Um, great game, right? Um, but every time we'd be at a sleepover or a lock-in or someplace where you knew, we have a lot of time, uh, the game Monopoly would get broken out and, and everyone would scurry because you wanted to be the dog or the car or at least you wanted to make sure you weren't going to be the fimble or that little boot uh, at the very end. Those, those were your options. And the game always took forever. 
Uh, I found most of the time it was whoever could stay up the longest or who could just care the longest uh, that would end up winning the game. Uh, but, but you might remember that, surely you do. You know, as each game began, you just began uh, collecting your money and buying up property and buying railroads, and then you're building houses and building hotels, and, and, and that's the way the game works. I was reading not too long ago uh, Lizzie Maggie, uh, individual who claims to have actually invented the game in 1903. It's a whole interesting story. Somehow she got ripped off uh, when the game came out in the 1930s. But uh, this is a quote from her about the game. She said, It might well have been called the game of life, as it contains all the elements of success and failure in the real world. And the object is the same as the human race, the accumulation of wealth. I hope that doesn't sit well with you. The goal of life, the accumulation of wealth, as she puts it. I mean, like I said, you've probably played it. You you know how it works. You, You play until one person has all the money, all of it, which, you know, fun fact, in a standard box of Monopoly is $20,580. In a box of Monopoly that's been handed down a few times, it's significantly less than that. But here's the thing about Monopoly. What, What I believe the real takeaway from a game like Monopoly is for us, even when you won the game, Even when the end came and you'd outlasted everyone and you possessed every single dollar in that game, it wasn't real. You you couldn't take that money and, and buy anything with it in the real world at all. Because the moment that you left the temporary world of the game, it was worthless. You 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 couldn't take that wealth with you. It meant nothing. You see how this connects here? The, the reality of Psalm 49 and the rest of the scriptures you know, teach us is this, that all money is monopoly money. You, you cannot take it with you. And it, even if you could, it would be absolutely worthless in, eterni- in eternity. Utterly and completely worthless. It exists in this temporary world where we live what? Maybe a hundred years if, if we live long. That's it. You know, Jesus' teaching in Matthew six nineteen through 21 warned us about treasuring our possessions. He, he says this, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We can enjoy God's good creation. We should. We really should. But but let us truly only treasure, treasure our triune God. Let let us only value what, what God values, right? Loving God, loving our neighbor. A generous way of life, the, the hope of the gospel, and so on. See, a few verses later in that Matthew passage, Jesus drops the, the two masters dichotomy, right? It's just three verses later. He says in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
Now, now this is important, especially for us. I, I know up to this point, I've pointed out a whole bunch of, of just the wealthiest names in our culture. Guys that you, you, you know you're never going to be as rich as these people. And, and I've done it for the point of just pointing out that everyone dies and leaves their money behind them. That's the point of that. But don't make this mistake, the, the foolish mistake of thinking that only, only the crazy rich are in danger of treasuring their money. Every single one of us in here is plenty wealthy that this is talking about us. We are plenty rich that we could fall into trusting our riches. And if we're honest, many Christians, maybe ourselves, live as though we are actually trying to serve two masters. Right? He doesn't say that you're going to try to serve just money. You're going to try to serve two masters, right? Meaning we find security, yes, in belonging to Christ, but, but maybe more so in what we have in the bank. Maybe that's where the deeper security comes from. Sure, we, we want to experience more of God, but we desire that. Do we desire that as much as, as we want to experience more income, more wealth? And I, I hate to admit it, but as, as Christians in our culture, we, we tend to also be incredibly materialistic, meaning we, we think in terms of what we can see rather than in spiritual terms, uh, spiritual realities of what we cannot see. And I don't just mean that in the sense of wanting to accumulate cool gadgets and whatnot. I mean it like this. We, we, we see people's financial and physical needs much more clearly and with a greater sense of compassion and concern than we see people's spiritual needs. Um, we, we look at guys, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, for an example, and we think, okay, he's got a good life. When the reality is, is we should really be brokenhearted for this man. His, his life is bankrupt when it comes to the important stuff. Absolutely brokenhearted because he needs Jesus. He, he needs the gospel. He needs real meaning. He needs hope in his life. He, he really needs a savior. All he's got is a bunch of wealth. That's it. That's a terribly sad story. William Plummer said in the 1800s, what's still true today, he said, it, it's better to be a poor man and trust in God than to be a rich man and, and trust in things. Now, I, I know when we hear these things, it's hard to keep, things straight, keep it straight, right? Money's not a bad thing. It really isn't. If you have a lot of money, that's not a bad thing either. Money, money can be a great blessing, a, a gift of the Lord for us to be stewards of. But, but it's also true that there is, there's no bigger trial to our faith than the gift of prosperity. It's one we don't see coming. But we need to understand that wealth is a tool like a shovel, right? But it's easy to, to fall in love with the tool once we see what it can do for us. We don't want to do that. And so then this section ends with verse 14 there. You listen to this. He says, like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. In this huge contrast with Psalm 23, where the Lord is our shepherd, uh, for the rich who are hoping in their wealth, not the Lord, death shall be their shepherd. In the Old Testament, that, that word Sheol, you've seen a few times now, it's just this nondescript idea of the place of the dead. Um, you're not in life. And so then if this psalm were a, a mountain, we would reach the peak, the top of the mountain here in verse 15. This would be the summit. Uh, 
In verse 15, there's a different group of people. It's not just everyone, right? It's the individuals who are singing this song, the people of God. And the difference is simply that they trust in God. That's the only difference. Remember in verses 7, we learn that no, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. Here we learn that God can do what no man can do. And I know that's obvious on some level, but specifically in this area, he says, uh, look at verse 15. He says, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. And that word Selah, the reason it keeps getting skipped over is it just, it just means to pause there for a moment. It's a good sign that whatever's just been said is of some significance, and it certainly is of huge significance. I mean, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament people rarely spoke about the afterlife. They just they didn't write much about it. They had a vague idea of it. But, but here the psalmist is absolutely certain that God will receive his soul. And so while man can't ransom another's life in the eternal sense, God can. That's what God can do that no man can do. We understand that a, a ransom was a payment that was made to purchase someone back, either in um, captivity or captured in war, of slavery of some sort. And, and we've come to, you know, even as we understand it today, a, a ransom note in some sort of a mystery story. Um, you hear what he's saying here then, that God will pay the ransom price for my soul so that I'm set free from death. And, and then he adds, God will receive me. And see, the Old Testament people reading this were just glimpsing from afar, where you can kind of recognize maybe an individual in the distance, but you don't see all the details. But they didn't understand what, that God would one day, all they understood, rather, is that God would one day provide a Redeemer. They didn't know the details of it. Uh, as Isaiah 53 says, you know, that God would provide a Redeemer who would be pierced for our transgressions, trust for our iniquities. That the Lord would lay on him the iniquities of us all. They, they understood this. They didn't know the details of it. And still the psalmist here, while he doesn't know how it's going to be done, you surely do. I, I imagine your mind has already run immediately to, to Christ here, right? But, but the psalmist here, carried along by, by the Holy Spirit in writing this, he, he just knows that God's going to do it someday, somehow. In Matthew 28 or 2028, 20, uh, God tells us this. He says, The Son of Man came not to be, to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. We start to see the details here. Jesus' death on the cross was the ransom price to redeem us from our sin, from, from, from the wrath that we have rightfully deserved. That's what He's come for. In the, in the letter of 1 Peter, in fact, contrasts the worthlessness of money. I love the way this goes down. Uh, to ransom our lives, but the priceless value of the blood of Christ to ransom our lives. And in 1 Peter 1, 18-19, it says this, You were ransomed okay, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You, you hear that. When you hear all that that means, if, if you have Christ, if your faith is in Jesus, you have something eternally superior to all the money in the world. And that's not an exaggeration. Truly, you do. That, that's why as Christians, we must live in the light of the resurrection. Not, not in fear of, of death or World War III. Or the next election or the shifting culture of our nation. We, we, we live by faith in the resurrection of Christ. 
And in the resurrection that we are certain is to occur, that we too will experience because of the ransom of our life that has been paid by the blood of Christ. We can live with that. So then the last section of our psalm, um, one more section here. If, if 15 is the peak of the mountain, these, these last few verses is kind of the slow walk back down the mountain. It's a bit of a summary of, of what we've learned leading up to 15 here. Beginning in verse 16, we read this. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, for the glory of his house increases, or when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to, to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light man in his pomp yet without understanding is like the beast that perish there from the start he's again saying you know don't don't worry about others wealth don't fear them even if they put them in a place of power of you also don't don't envy seriously don't envy he's saying you don't look at guys like jay-z or bryce harper or whoever crazy rich person, maybe just your neighbor who has a little more than you or someone you know here in town, right? You don't envy them for being rich. If anything, you, you look at their lives with the eyes of eternity and you pity them if they don't have anything more than wealth. Also, test our own hearts. Do you, do you trust in your wealth or do you trust in Jesus Christ to, to ransom your, your soul? Where are you really finding that hope in? And again, wealth is not bad. It's not wealth that disqualified anyone. It's a lack of spiritual discernment, a lack of trusting God. And, you know, in a word, it's a lack of simple God-given faith. Jesus is the real treasure, and we receive him by grace through faith. And you know what that means. I mean, do you know what that means, Christian? You already have all that you need to live a full and satisfying and wonderful life if you have Christ. You don't have to wait for something down the line where you have more. You already have it all. You, you really do. You, you, if you have Christ, that's the good stuff. That's the real treasure. That's the stuff when you, when you leave the, the game of Monopoly that comes with you that's real. We're so abundantly rich in the things that matter. We really are. We can be excited then when we read passages like 1 Corinthians 2.9, which says this. Listen to this. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man even imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. That's what we're looking forward to. In Christ, our eternal future is secure and it's glorious. It's absolutely glorious. So today I'm going to end with a quote from a, a Scottish pastor, um, Murdoch Campbell. Not one you've probably heard of very often. And I want to end with this quote because it so succinctly just summarizes beautifully Psalm 49. He says this, we, we leave the world either with God or with nothing. Let's pray. Abba, Father, you care for us. You did what no man can do. You ransomed our soul 
at great cost to you. Jesus paid our debt and has set us free from sin and the wrath we deserve. What can we say but thank you? Thank you. Lord, give us wisdom to relate to money and wealth in a way that honors you. That we wouldn't fear it, even fear receiving it, Lord, but that we would use it in a way to honor you. In a way that reveals that you are our true treasure. In a way that shows that we know we will die and in Christ we have received the only thing we need. The thing money can't ransom. We have received redemption. We have received adoption into your life and eternal life. Or adoption to your family and eternal life. Lord, thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.